Welcome to the War and Diplomacy podcast, produced by the Centre for War and Diplomacy at Lancaster University. The CWD provides the historical context and strategic analysis to inform understanding of today's geopolitical challenges, promoting discussion through research, teaching, consultancy and public events. Hello, I'm Marco Weiss. I'm a reader in international history and security at Lancaster University and deputy director of the Center for War and Diplomacy. Today, I'm once more joined by a real soldier scholar, Colonel Professor Winfried Heinemann, who spent his career at the Center for Military History and Social Sciences of the Bundeswehr in Potsdam, where he worked in editorial, research and leadership positions. There, he notably carried out extensive research on the diplomatic history of NATO, post-World War II German military history in both its Eastern and Western variants and especially the military resistance against Hitler. Currently, he is Professor of Modern and Contemporary History at Cottbus University, serves as the Associate and Book Reviews Editor of the International Journal of Military History and Historiography, and is an honorary researcher of our very Center for War and Diplomacy. His most recent book is Operation Valkyrie, a military history of the 20 July 1944 plot, which just came out with the Greuter. Today, however, we'll talk about the Army of Unity, namely the merger of the armed forces of the Federal Republic of Germany and the German Democratic Republic following the fall of the Berlin Wall. Not only has Winfried extensively worked on this topic, but it has also become a contentious historical issue in recent years as archival material is becoming available 30 years after the event. So welcome, Winfried, and thank you very much for agreeing to be interviewed on this topic today. And so without further ado, I'll allow myself to go straight into the first question. So Winfried, you started your career as a Cold War West German Bundeswehr officer. So what was your first personal experience of German reunification? Yeah, hi everybody. Good to be back with Lancaster. What was my first experience? Okay, I was born in 1956. I was conscripted into the Cold War Bundeswehr in 1975, and then I joined as a regular officer in 1983. And all through those years, of course, I had never been allowed to travel into any communist country, including the GDR in East Germany. And then comes 1989-1990, and everything is changing. And in 19, must have been 1992, there is a military history conference in Potsdam that I'm supposed to go to in the, in the summer, beautiful day. And I get off the train in Potsdam Central Station in, in full regalia, in full my, my full uniform, look around and think to myself, would you ever have believed that? I think that is the most moving experience that I would have with the, the end of the Cold War and German unification. Would I ever have believed I would make it to Potsdam in uniform? Fascinating. I can imagine that must have been quite something. Now, moving perhaps more closely to the topic of today, so how do historians today see the merger of the two Germanys and their armed forces after the end of the Cold War? Well, the first thing one needs to say is it wasn't a merger. It wasn't a merger and it wasn't a hostile takeover either. 
as some former East Germans would like to depict it today. The GDR was bankrupt. It was bankrupt economically, politically, and not least ecologically as well. And in their first free elections in March 1990, GDR citizens voted overwhelmingly in favor of those parties that advocated a swift accession of East Germany to the Federal Republic. And there were other options being discussed, such as creating a new state with a new constitution for a new Germany. But that's exactly what the people in the GDR did not want. They wanted to accede to the Federal Republic of Germany as quickly as possible. Now, at the military level, that meant that the Bundeswehr, the West German army, continued to exist with all its assets and all its obligations, including personnel, while the East German National People's Army, abbreviated usually as NVA, ceased to exist on the 2nd of October 1990. So the question was not one of a merger but was to what extent and under which conditions NVA personnel would be accepted into the Bundeswehr. And interestingly enough, very little research has gone into that. What has been done largely is due to eminent sociologists, such as my former colleague Nina Leonhard of the Bundeswehr Center for Military History and Social Sciences. But per basis, consists largely of those East German officers who did not end up in the Bundeswehr. And of course, as a historian, you find that kind of source slightly biased as problematic. But as you said, now we are 30 years after the event, documents are becoming available in Germany and abroad as well to some extent. And maybe that will kickstart more research actually us talking about this today is maybe also something to encourage someone to, to kickstart that and or be kickstarted and do it. Yeah, that would be indeed an idea for research. Now, uh, moving perhaps more specifically into the topic itself rather than the historiography about it, during the German reunification process, the NVA clearly lost out. What state were the East German armed forces in at the end of the Cold War? Uh, the East German military was in trouble anyway. Starting in early 1989, the GDR had had to downsize its forces for economic reasons and also for demographic reasons. The GDR had also encouraged, heavily encouraged, the West German peace movement in the early 80s against the NATO double track decision, etc. But of course, that too had backfired to some extent because as a peace movement had sprung up in West Germany, a peace movement had also sprung up in East Germany using the slogans that were being used in the West that were being encouraged by the GDR in the West, but suppressed in their own country. Of course, that kind of contradictory attitude doesn't work forever. Then with the political changes in the GDR occurring throughout the year 1989, by the end of 1989, there was a great uncertainty among the military as well. They had always been told they were there to support the socialist regime, but they have never really been sent into the streets to take military action against demonstrators. Um, the times they were changing and nobody knew where they would go. Around the new year, soldiers in Belitz, south of Berlin, even went on strike. Then a group of reform-minded NVA officers emerged who had been there for a while 
but whose ideas have never been accepted anywhere. The person one should mention here is, is Admiral Theodor Hoffmann, who had been the chief of the East German Navy, uh, who suddenly became Minister of National Defense. So those reformers, would-be reformers, hoped there might be a future for their East German army. The concept was one of two armies in one state, one, the Bundeswehr in the, in the West as part of NATO, and the other, former NVA, without NATO affiliation in the East. But of course, just imagine from a Polish point of view, what that would have meant for the Poles, an independent German military force without NATO control right on their doorstep. And that at a time when the Federal Republic hadn't even finally acknowledged Poland's Western border. So that never came to anything. The next thing was that after the March elections that I already mentioned, the pacifist Protestant pastor Rainer Ippelmann became minister of disarmament and defense as he called himself, Admiral Hoffmann stepped back and became chief of staff of the armed forces. It was clear that the East German military had no public support and that many of its personnel would soon have to find a place for themselves in civil life at a time when unemployment was, was rising drastically in the, in the GDR as well. So Eppelmann and Hoffmann saw their roles in preparing the NVA for an eventual takeover. For example, it was clear the Bundeswehr at the time didn't have any female officers outside the medical services. So all women in the East German military were discharged. All general officers and all staff officers over 55 years of age were discharged in advance of unification. One must say, though, that the East German military did remain disciplined and quiet. And even when it became obvious that there was no prospect for many of its officers, they did continue to serve loyally, and they made sure that the vast amounts of equipment, of weapons, ammo, were secured against misappropriation. That is certainly something that deserves to be mentioned. Thank you. Uh, that's really interesting, especially that they uh, remained loyal and so self-controlled towards the end. Well, they, they were, as some people put it, they were the Red Prussians. <laughs> but they were Prussians. True, very true. So moving on to the next question, related, of course. So how did the process of absorbing NVA personnel really work in the end? Okay, it worked in several stages. In the international agreement about German unification, what is known as the 2 plus 4 treaty, the two Germanys plus the four victorious powers of World War II, the post-unification Federal Republic had undertaken to downsize its combined forces to 370,000. Now that's down from 495,000 West German plus 170,000 East German troops by January 1989. So it was a huge downsizing. As regards the East German personnel, the first thing was to define categories. And all that had to be done on the hoof. Nobody had ever done any planning prior to March 1990. By October, it went into effect. So you need to keep that in mind that these things were done very quickly without much preparation. So some of the faults in the structure were just due to the haste with which things had to be done. So from the outset, it was clear no former border guards would be accepted into the Bundeswehr. None of the political commissars, no one from military intelligence, and as I'd mentioned before, no generals or admirals either. And lastly, 
no one would be allowed to continue to serve who had in any way cooperated with the GDR Ministry for State Security, the, the Stasi. This is something that we will need to come back to again later. So by 3rd of October, when German unity went into effect, there were about 50, 51,000 East German volunteers left, officers, NCOs. We will leave out the conscripts for the moment. All those 51,000 could continue to serve in their original rank until the end of the year. And during that time, those that wanted could apply for a two-year contract with the Bundeswehr. And about 11,700 applied to continue as officers. About 12,300 applied for NCO status. And about 1,000 even wanted to serve as privates. Now, out of these, about 6,000 or just over 50% of the officers were accepted. 11,200, that's more than 90% of the NCO candidates, and 80% of those who had applied as privates were actually taken on for two years into the Bundeswehr. There was one thing though, technically, under the two plus four treaty, all military personnel had lost their ranks with the end of the GDR. And now many officers, who continued to serve had to accept employment at a lesser rank than the one that they had held in the NVA, or even officers, former NVA officers, were taken on for an NCO career. The reason was that promotion in the NVA had been much swifter than it had been in the Bundeswehr. And you even had 37-year-old colonels. Now, you couldn't expect a 50-year-old Bundeswehr lieutenant colonel to serve under a 37-year-old former East German colonel. And also, if you had accepted them as colonels, for the next 20, 25 years, the Bundeswehr would have been controlled by East German officers and East German generals exclusively because no Western officers would have made it to anywhere. So obviously that wasn't, um, that was unacceptable. It was hard for people in, in the East German military and for those that were taken on, but it was an inevitable decision. Okay, out of those who received a two-year contract, anyone could apply for indefinite employment, but if they left or were not accepted after two years, they did get all those perks that Bundeswehr soldiers and officers get after serving for two years. So it gave them some kind of social security for a transitory period. So as I said, about Half of the existing NVA volunteers applied. The other half didn't. Now, that's interesting. There were quite a few who did not want to serve under capitalism, who did not want to serve for political reasons. There were those who were just disillusioned with military service in general, who thought they had no prospect for themselves or who knew that they had been cooperating with the Stasi and that that would sooner or later be the end of their career anyway. By the end of 1998, so eight years later, the number of former NVA military personnel still serving in Bundeswehr uniform dropped to about 9,300 all ranks. And then the Bundeswehr discontinued the statistics. The Bundeswehr did not list them separately, so no certain statements are possible for the time after that. In 2014, Gerd Gavelek was promoted Brigadier General. He'd been born in East Germany in 1959, and when the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, he had actually been studying in Frunze Military Academy in Moscow. So when he was promoted Brigadier General, he was the first former NVA officer to attain that rank in the Bundeswehr. 
So the process of absorbing former NVA personnel is over. On the contrary, former NVA personnel are now gradually being phased out of the Bundeswehr through retirement. But there's another point. Okay, former NVA officers are now retiring, but it is the sons and grandchildren who now serve in uniform. A few years ago, a former Generalmajor, that's the NVA one star, was proud to introduce to me his grandson, who was then a cadet in the engineers, Bundeswehr engineers. So that those self-recruiting mechanisms that are traditional in practically all militaries uh, worldwide, even work across the revolutionary upheavals of 1989-1990. So that is what's going to characterize the Bundeswehr for many more years to come. That is absolutely fascinating. Um, now, of course, this process did not take place in a vacuum. So could you say a few words about the geopolitical and geostrategic framework in which this process took place? Yeah, I mentioned one already. That's the 2 plus 4 treaty limiting force sizes. But there's more. German unity came into effect on 3rd of October 1990, but on 2nd August that year, Saddam Hussein had attacked and conquered Kuwait. And soon enough, the US began to move one of its two army corps from Germany to the Gulf. That didn't work without German support. German soldiers started guarding American barracks because there were no Americans left. The Bundeswehr mobilized an entire reserve military police battalion to facilitate troop movements, including nuclear and chemical weapons. Eventually, German air defense assets were deployed to Diyarbakir, Turkey, when Saddam Hussein threatened to attack that country with scuds. Now, the Bundeswehr had never had a strategic deployment capacity, and it hadn't been meant to have one either. So it, it proved lucky, for example, that the NVA had owned containers to accommodate soldiers far from home, and they could now be sent to eastern Turkey. So that's one thing. Then 1990 to 1994 saw the great withdrawal, the return of some 340,000 ex-Soviet troops, plus about 210,000 dependents from the former GDR. Again, that was something that could only be achieved due to substantial logistical support by the Bundeswehr. And also, many of those former Soviet officers and men had nowhere to return to. I mean, the Soviet Union, which had sent them to Germany, no longer existed. And no matter where they wanted to go back to, Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, whatever, housing was in short supply. So they, they literally didn't know where to go to. The German government funded a housing program to the tune of about what would today be 4 billion euros, give them accommodation back home. And not least, it was reassuring to know that the former GDR territory now came under Article 6 of the North Atlantic Treaty, was protected by NATO. Just imagine if revisionist forces had gained the upper hand in Moscow, and if they had then tried to retain East Germany as their trophy of the Second World War. This being part of NATO might very well have made a difference. Many people in West Germany didn't even think about it at the time, but sure, it was important. So the Bundeswehr had to manage this absorption process with all its problems under the conditions of a general reduction of overall numbers while also being involved in several delicate but highly relevant missions. And we haven't even mentioned yet the conversion of command structures, 
the introduction of West German-style military administration. We say here that military in peacetime military administration comes in view of an enemy. Or the huge job of training and re-educating East German military personnel for their future roles. Yes, that is, uh, of course, something uh, rather difficult. And now moving back to Germany itself, and you all already have done to some extent the transition. So how did the domestic political landscape influence the integration of former East German soldiers and officers into the Bundeswehr? Taking up something I mentioned briefly before, they found themselves without much political support. Obviously, all West German parties didn't see any need to cater to their needs. Um, obviously, the party that would have been called to represent them, of which many of them were still members, was the former socialist state party, now called the Party of Democratic Socialism. But that was just reinventing itself as a peacenik party and didn't want to have much to do with them either. And everybody just wanted to make sure that the former soldiers and officers wouldn't, wouldn't pose a danger to the liberal parliamentary democratic system. And of course, everybody expected a huge peace dividend to come out of it as well. So the only support they had came from the Bundeswehrverband. That is, it's not exactly a trade union, but something like, which represents the social interests of Bundeswehr military personnel. They adopted the East German officers and men as well, and became a pressure group for their social economic interests as well. Then I would like to come back now to the point of cooperation with the Stasi, because that turned out to be very problematic. Because cooperation with the Stasi could range from being a full-blown agent and you had ratted on people who had made unwelcome remarks and they'd been arrested or whatever, to signing a statement that you would cooperate at the age of 16 and then never doing anything after. And no matter what it was, the moment they found out after 1990, you had signed that statement, you were a goner. And of course, when people were faced with the choice of whether to say, yes, I cooperated or no, the temptation was great because if you said no, you would be employed at least for some time. And many people believed, of course, that the Stasi had been efficient enough to destroy their own files and your role would never come to light. But what it meant, of course, was that for 10 or so years, again and again, former East German personnel, officers, who had found a role for themselves and who fulfilled the role within the Bundeswehr, suddenly had to go because, yes, documentation did come to light. I mean, that caused real problems for the Bundeswehr. It led to a feeling of mistrust against East German military personnel. It disrupted personnel planning. I know of one case in which a former East German officer had been selected to take command of Bundeswehr military police battalion. And before he could assume his duties, he was sent packing within hours. And that is the kind of thing that in any military in the world would cause major problems of morale and personnel planning. That is understandable. That makes planning very difficult, of course. Now, you have spoken to quite some extent about uh, the soldiers and officers themselves, but what happened to all the weapons, equipment, and more generally, the infrastructure of the NVA, I mean, the East German Armed Forces? Yeah, there was to be an overall reduction in numbers anyway. So 
many of the East German equipment wasn't compatible with um, NATO standards, take the Kalashnikov, which used different ammo, or it wasn't compatible with German safety regulations, or it was just not ergonomic. Case in point would be the BMP infantry fighting vehicle. It was much lower than the West German Marda, and therefore much more difficult to hit. But while you could live inside the Marda for a week, after an hour or two inside the BMP, most soldiers would be so cramped that they would be unable to walk out on their own and fight. So the BMP went out as well. There were huge collection points for fighting vehicles, tanks, artillery pieces, ETC, and um, most were scrapped. Some were sold off, and um, that included actually hundreds of thousands of Kalashnikov assault rifles. The one big exception that people did notice were the MiG-29 from the NVA squadron in Lager, that's on uh, the Baltic near Rostock. And until 2004, you could see MiGs with Bundeswehr insignia flying out of that airbase. And then they too were sold off and the squadron in question was the first to receive the Eurofighter. But so for like 10, 15 years, the Bundeswehr was actually flying MiG-29s, quite something. Then there is infrastructure. That's a huge thing. The Soviets had usually occupied the Wehrmacht barracks when they came in 1945. So the GDR had had to build new barracks, modern accommodation. So in the 70s and 80s, the Soviets would complain they were sitting in the old barracks and the NVA had the modern ones. Many of the Wehrmacht barracks were, were actually given up, demolished or converted, converted into housing, schools, hotels, whatever. And accommodation that was supposed to be used long-term by the Bundeswehr had to be modernized throughout. The quality of accommodation in the East German military was such that you could not expect post-1990 conscripts to, to live in them. It is unbelievable. As a rule, the military technology, the vehicles, the tanks and so on, had had far better housing than the soldiers themselves that was expected to serve them. If there was heating to be had, it would be in the garages, not so much in the accommodation. Then almost a quarter of the GDR territory had been used one way or the other by, by the East German of the Soviet military. There were huge areas to the south of Berlin that served as training areas and actually had served as training areas since the days of the Kaiser. And ecological concerns have not been very high on the list of priorities, both for the Soviets and the East German military. So to this day, if you have a bushfire in those areas in the summer, the firemen will not venture into the area. They will just sort of surround it and try to seal off the fire because every half hour or so there's a big bang and then another artillery round is gone off or a hand grenade or whatever. So the ecological problems will be there to haunt Germany for many more years to come. That is really fascinating, also this ecological dimension. I mean, of course, leftover ammunitions are a problem in many parts of the world. Um, now, uh, the last question, and that's again more of a historiographical or research question. So is there anything about the so-called army of unity that still requires further historical investigation? Yeah, there, there is a lot. Let me start with one thing that emerged as a lead that we can take up, and it brings us back a bit to the Stasi thing. We now know a lot more than we used to about the system of socialist national defense, as they called it at the time. So 
we understand better the role of the other armed agencies inside the GDR, the border guards, the various police formations, including riot police. There was a paramilitary working class militias organized by the party. There was the Gesellschaft für Sport und Technik, that's the Sport and Technology Association. That was the organization that was to militarize the youth. And we can see how the Stasi was maybe the most important, but only one element in that structure. A structure designed to secure the GDR regime and its survival. And the fact that after 1990, everybody focused on the role of the Stasi, and that in turn led to the exclusion of anyone associated with the Stasi, meant that the Stasi continued to serve as the shield and sword of the party. People would kick you out if you'd had the loosest of connections with the Stasi. But if you had served in the party, if you had been in transport police and you had reported on people traveling in the general direction of the border under suspicious circumstances, they had been arrested. Nobody cared at the time. Now, with what we know now, we would say that all those agencies together helped secure the GDR and we need to interpret much better than we have done so far their respective roles. I'm not exculpating the Stasi, that's not it. But we also need to historicize these events now. We may say that those decisions regarding Stasi activities, etc., were harsh, were maybe counterproductive, okay, maybe, but they were taken by a society that was completely agreed on this. There was a huge public consensus that that was how it should be. No one but the Stasi should ever be allowed public office. At the time, there would have been an outcry if anyone had suggested a differentiated handling of individual cases, not to mention the fact that it would have been very difficult to do so on the narrow source basis to do that. So if we historicize that, we come to the point where we say these developments were by and large the result of what the population of the GDR, what the people of the GDR had voted for in March 1990. So the process of military integration and the process of German reunification as a whole, including its international context, how did Margaret Thatcher, George Bush, François Mitterrand interact with Mikhail Gorbachev and the Germans in bringing this about, those documents are now available, largely. Sadly, it doesn't apply obviously, to the Soviet documents, which are now in Russian archives. But what, what has been based so far on memoirs, eyewitness accounts, and, and, and a bit of investigative journalism should now become the subject of serious, groundbreaking, source-based historical research that would be a fascinating subject. So if you have a PhD student looking for one, this is what he should do. I will definitely do so. This is a very good idea. No, it's definitely a topic that deserves further historical investigation, as you made so clear. So, Winfried, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, it was really a fascinating discussion, and I'm really glad that you shared your insights into the Army of Unity. I would also like to thank our listeners and, of course, invite them to listen to other podcasts in the series uh, whenever they are available. We already have a couple of podcasts, quite a few actually available uh, on Anchor, Spotify and Apple. And among those uh, earlier podcasts of the Center for War and Diplomacy, there is also one by Winfried on his book, 
uh, originally published in German, but which is now widely available in English. So thank you very much again, Winfried, for joining me today. And let's do it again in the future. Will do. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. Discover more from the CWD on our website, lancaster.ac.uk forward slash CWD. There you can also find details of Lancaster's MA in International and Military History and MA in War and Diplomacy.